The guardians of our health, our doctors, nurses, teachers and parents, are working together to keep us well and well, well. All of them must know and agree on the health practices we need at home. But wait a minute, young lady. How did you get into this picture? You see, we're, we're, we're trying to prove a point about nature and beauty, and you're not exactly helping, you know. Welcome to Gyno Girl. Long time no talk, folks. I'm your host, Rosa Tobin, and I'm so excited to be back and bringing you the extended interview with Sean from Planned Parenthood that I mentioned in our last episode on Pap Smears. Is this the part where we should just start chanting vagina? Vagina, vagina. <laughs> think a starting place for me is that with women's health it's a little bit more complex than like men's health as far as prevention goes so I think um, women actually have like a lot more that they need to know than men unfortunately fortunately or unfortunately I think what's unfortunate (laughs) is we're not doing more to like talk about talk about it and like just the basic stuff it's just appalling that men and women don't really understand the menstrual cycle. It's just such a brilliant work of like hormonal ballet. It's not that complicated. It's going on constantly. And like, I will tell you, I definitely left medical school. I definitely left residency not really understanding the menstrual cycle. And it's really because it's not emphasized. Yes, Molly? Miss Jensen, is it true that people can tell when you're menstruating? No, it isn't. But you should be more careful than ever about personal cleanliness and pay more attention to your hair and your nails and plan to wear your prettiest dress. In other words, be your most attractive self. Miss Jensen, what about dancing? Can you when you're menstruating? Yes, you can, with moderation. In fact, you can do most of the things you usually do. You can bathe or shower as long as you use warm water. And you can wash your hair if you're sure to dry it quickly. But it's not a very good idea to skate or ride horseback or do strenuous dancing like square dancing. And remember, menstruation is as normal and natural as eating or breathing or sleeping. What I'd say is none of this stuff is beyond the comprehension of anybody. So I'd like to get into that. Maybe the basis for anxiety is not knowing. And then worse than no information is the misinformation, which is so dangerous because it really blocks people from getting services that they could really benefit from. You know, I still talk to so many young women who think that birth control will prohibit them from getting pregnant in the future or an abortion will, you know, and some of this does have some facts. We have a history of forced sterilization of minority populations. So it's like no wonder that when a woman went to the gynecologist for some kind of procedure and then after that time could no longer get pregnant, that's how these kind of beliefs start. But let's be honest that the beliefs do have a, a place in history and a fact to them. Forced sterilization is a part of U.S. history that I was unaware of. After my interview with Sean, I went and researched the U.S. history of state-sponsored sterilization programs. 
and learned so much. It's hard to reflect on and it's hard to realize that this history is still a part of our present. It's almost hard to talk about, but I feel like it's important. When state-sponsored sterilization programs began, sterilization was seen as a cost-effective way of relieving society of the burden of providing for the social welfare of the unfit and the socially inadequate. Well, we thought it necessary to present your family's case to the State Medical Commission. And after an examination, they decided there was but one important action to take, to have your entire family sterilized. Why, what's that? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, we investigated your family's history, Alice. And most of the past three generations have been feeble-minded. Congenital cripples or habitual drunkards. Instead of improving, each generation is more of a problem. Now, in this state, we have a law which provides for such people to have an operation so there won't be any more children. But there's nothing wrong with me. Perhaps not. You wouldn't want to marry some fine young man and be ashamed of the children you had. And you mean they're going to stop me from having children ever? Exactly. I'm all right, I tell you. I won't go to any hospital. Now, Alice, you must be reasonable. Now, we got a court order. I won't go, I tell you. We don't want any trouble with you, young woman. If you refuse to go, the officer here will take you by force. Sterilize him, my boy. Sterilize him. In 1927, the Supreme Court decision of Buck versus Bell found that the state, under its police powers, had the constitutional authority to segregate and systematically sterilize people to reduce the economic and societal burden they inflict on the nation. It was an eight-to-one decision. In the majority opinion, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. One example is Northern California, where more than 20,000 people were coercively sterilized between 1909 and 1979. Nearly one-third of all the U.S. forced sterilizations were done in Northern California. By 1924, 15 states had similar sterilization laws to those of Northern California. And the U.S. wasn't just following the examples of other nations in the world, but leading the charge. Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf was published in 1925, where he wrote, There is today one state in which, at least, the weak beginnings toward a better conception are noticeable. Of course, it is not our model, the German Republic, but the U.S., Reich deployed nearly identical laws to those of the U.S. in 1933. Historically and currently, forced sterilization practices target minoritized populations. Throughout the 20th century, Latina women in Puerto Rico, New York City, and California were specifically targeted by the government for sterilization. Black women have also long been the targets of population control and have been disproportionately affected by sterilization abuse. 
For example, in North Carolina, a state noted for its discriminatory sterilization practices, 65% of sterilization procedures were performed on Black women, even though only 25% of the state's female population is Black. Native American women were also subjected to coercive population control practices. By 1970, as many as 25% of Native American women between the ages of 15 and 44 years old were sterilized. In the 1960s, Puerto Rican women of childbearing age were more than 10 times more likely to be sterilized than women from the United States. A 1965 survey of Puerto Rican residents found that about one-third of all Puerto Rican mothers ages 20 through 49 were sterilized. Since the United States assumed governance of Puerto Rico in 1898, population control had been a major effort. The United States cited the same concerns expressed before in previous sterilization cases that overpopulation would lead to disastrous social and economic conditions and therefore instituted the population control program in Puerto Rico. Instead of providing Puerto Rican women with access to alternative forms of safe and legal and reversible contraception, the U.S. Population Control Program promoted the use of permanent sterilization. There was institutionalized encouragement for sterilization, including door-to-door visits by health workers and industrial employer favoritism towards sterilized women. Many women didn't know that tubal ligation was a permanent form of contraception. Institutionalized sterilization abuse was challenged by local coalitions. Puerto Rican women's groups, along with the Movement for Puerto Rican Independence, fought against the injustices of the program. By denying access to reproductive health services for the women who were most in need of them, The United States exerted control over the growth of the Puerto Rican population as well as over the lives of many Puerto Rican women by denying access to reproductive health services. Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, a prominent figure in the fight for women's reproductive rights, summarized the situation in Puerto Rico with the statement, Women make choices based on alternatives, and there haven't been many alternatives in Puerto Rico. Sterilization, like all controversial topics, requires viewing multiple perspectives in order to see the whole instead of the pieces. Historically, there were divisions within the feminist movement on how sterilization fit into the bigger picture of reproductive rights. Mainstream white feminists marched for the right to choose, including uninhibited access to sterilizations, contraception, and abortions. Feminists of color also called for abortion rights and easy access to contraception, but broke with white feminists on the issue of sterilization, arguing that for women of color, sterilization was not always a matter of choice. They called for waiting periods before tubal ligation procedures, and Latina activists called for Spanish-language consent forms. 
NPR's All Things Considered recently produced a segment on No Mas Bebes, a documentary which tells the story of how 10 immigrant Mexican women sued L.A. County doctors, the state, and the U.S. government in 1975 for allegedly violating their civil rights. I haven't seen the documentary yet, so I can't give a review, but I can give you a snippet from the trailer. I saw doctors hold up the syringe and say, you want the shot? You want the shot? Sign. Sign. You better sign those papers or your baby probably could die here. I couldn't believe that something like this was happening in the United States. Do you know that you've been sterilized? They have no right. That's not their decision. It's our decision. If you want to learn more about the documentary and viewing opportunities, visit nomasbebesmovie.com. Directors Tahima Peña and Espino say their goal was to document a history that continues to repeat itself, pointing to nearly 150 women sterilized in California's prisons between 2006 and 2010. So yes, misinformation can and does impede individuals getting the health care they need. But it's difficult when this misinformation is actually fact-grounded in past and present. When I first started researching forced sterilization, one of the most shocking realizations was how recently these historical events occurred and that forced sterilization is still happening in the United States as well as worldwide. Trust needs to be rebuilt between people and communities affected by forced sterilization and healthcare institutions. I strongly suggest taking the time to do a little research on your own. And now, before the next show starts, let's enjoy an intimate... It's intermission time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. So come to get ourselves a treat. Time to drink your chocolate time. The next show will start in... Okay, let's talk about cervical cancer. Cervical cancer screening is extremely important. What I mean by screening is like, you're going along in your daily life, everything's cool. Screening ensures that it stays cool into the future. So this is where like, I wish I had like the the numbers in my head, (laughs) but you know, cervical cancer is like one of the most common gynecologic cancers. Okay. The reality is it's nearly 100% preventable. So anytime we have a cervical cancer death, it's like really a failure of our medical system. The rationale for cervical cancer screening uh, has become more apparent with increasing information. Basically, we know now cervical cancer is caused by a virus. That's the HPV virus? The HPV virus. Do you know what HPV HPV stands for? Human papilloma? Human papilloma virus. But I don't even 100% know what that means. So you can think about human papilloma virus it's like a family of virus let's call it a gang because like these are bad virus you know (laughs) so like we don't like them okay they're they're there with us okay there are over a hundred different subtypes of these virus two of them 
primarily the subtype 16 and 18 are responsible for over 70% of cervical cancer. So of that large group of these viruses, there are two that are causing the majority of like more aggressive cervical cancer. There are many other types that may not even cause any type of like signs of infection, but people have them. I will let you know this is the most common sexually transmitted infection. More common than chlamydia, more common than herpes. Everybody's freaked out about these. Yeah. It's like HPV. So primary prevention would be utilizing an, a vaccine, which is called the HPV vaccine or Gardasil. Okay. So this actually pushes us to the potential of being able to like eliminate cervical cancer. Now in this country we've done a very poor job of immunizing our young people against this. While the number of people receiving the HPV vaccine continues to slightly increase each year, four out of 10 adolescent girls and six out of 10 adolescent boys have not started the HPV vaccine series. Every year, about 27,000 women and men in the U.S. are diagnosed with a cancer caused by HPV, and about 17,600 of these people are women. Since the HPV vaccine was developed in 2006, the vaccine has helped reduce HPV infections among teenage girls by 56%, even with the vaccination rates remaining low. The National Cancer Institute has called for an urgency of action in closing vaccination gaps, citing that current vaccine rates are falling short of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services goal for 80% coverage among 13- to 15-year-old girls by 2020. A lot of this was, you know, believe, oh, vaccine is going to hurt you, or vaccine is going to cause these young women to go out and have sex. So... I guess, like, ideally you'd say, well, no one ever has sex, but then we wouldn't reproduce. So, like, that's kind of off the table. That's, like, the abstinence-only thing, which, like, has been a money-losing proposition. If people are sexually active, which, you know, that's like a human function is being driven towards reproduction, they're going to get exposed to this virus. It's just the most common thing. It's probably been with our species for a million years, you know? It doesn't kill us, but it can, like, survive with us for a while, then we pass it on to somebody else. It's been with us. So I highly promote the HPV vaccine in my practice. I really don't try to tell people what they should do, but I say you should get the HPV vaccine. Whenever there's an opportunity, this is the best place to take that opportunity to prevent even before somebody's gotten infected. Only under the Affordable Care Act are there, like, really requirements for insurance companies to pay for that vaccine. which is hugely expensive and most people are not going to jump for it unless it's being paid for. So that would be like the earliest step of prevention. Okay, so can women that get the HPV vaccine still get HPV? Yes. So that doesn't mean that what those women should not get pap smears done. Pap smear is actually the second tier of prevention. The cervix is the channel between the vagina and the uterus, okay? And this is like very specialized tissue. It's like the cervix is badass. (laughs) It is able to like expand from a next to nothing hole to like 
10 centimeters wide for a baby to be released from. That's really cool. It can be like ripped and torn and stabbed and still heal up and oh, you're like, stop, yeah, I'm stop. like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but it's cool. Keep going. <laughs> it's incredibly specialized um, and resilient tissue. It's also constantly regenerating from the inside out. It's a tube, so the inside layers of cells are cells that are different that are on the outside layer. So okay. the inside layer is kind of constantly pushing out to the outside and regenerating. So this is the primary site where the HPV virus can cause infection, is on that outer layer of the cervix. So we need to first be able to visualize the cervix, which when you're first starting to do these as like a medical student or something, you're just praying to God <laughs> that you can find the cervix. <laughs> you're just like, please, please, what do I have to do to find the cervix? Oh but after you, you know, kind of get used to it, you can kind of see it's different variations. <laughs> the tissue, you can kind of usually find it. Some women, it can be a little challenging. Anyway, once we visualize the cervix, we take what looks like a small broom and we basically twirl that on the opening of the cervix. And what that okay. does is it scoops up a bunch of different cells. There's a variety of normal appearance to cervix. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever checked out mybeautifulcervix.com? No, I haven't, but I'm intrigued. Okay, so this is where people post a bunch of different pictures of different cervix with IUDs in place, with oh, that's so different cool. variations about what, what can be normal. Because this is a very difficult place for somebody to see on their own body. I looked it up. I looked it up. You might recall that I mentioned in our last episode on pap smears that I'm not the type of person that wants to spend my free time looking at internal organs. And yet, I found myself on mybeautifulcervix.com. It's exactly what you think it is, folks. It's a whole bunch of pictures of cervix. And you know what? I think it's an absolutely fantastic idea to have this place where women can go and look at cervix and learn to feel comfortable and accept their own as beautiful. That being said, you know, I think seeing my own cervix kind of filled me up on cervixes for a lifetime. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. But I thought I'd put it out there. It's exactly what you think. It's a lot of cervix online. So do with that information as you will. Once we collect that sample, um, in the past it was done by a pathologist who would take a look under a slide, like under a microscope, okay, and give their impression of what the cells look like. Now it's an automated process. What does that mean? They run this stuff with like a computer in Texas. They run the cells? Yes. Through a computer? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, what they're probably life? put on some kind of plate or something. Okay. And I think they have some kind of like algorithm. There is probably a pathologist involved somewhere in the yeah. process, but from my understanding, a lot of it has become automated. It's just mind-boggling. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, because there's a tremendous volume. So, you know, which is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a good thing. So cervical cancer screening in general in this country, the recommendation is for it to begin at age 21. Mm -hmm. There's actually like an organization called the ASCCP, which is like, I don't even know what the acronym stands for, <laughs> okay. but they like get together and they like decide this stuff. So the stuff really? is not written in stone. Wow. It's just people, you know, pathologists, gynecologists, family medicine specialists, epidemiologists, they get together, they geek out on HPV and cervical cancer screening 
and they, I'm sure they like fight yeah. about it. I'm debate sure, it. Debate it's it. Like, and like their recommendations change over time. And it used to be related to when did a woman have her, this is so weird. It's in like the journalist's sexual debut. Oh my God. <laughs> no, like such, not. Such weird terminology. Debut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like a ball. I know. Like, After all, she's oh, only. Daddy, don't be so silly. I'm not a baby anymore. I know, dear, but uh, no. No, honey, I guess you aren't. The benefits of getting this done are early knowledge of cell abnormalities on the cervix that could result in a cancer later on, and being able to do something about it. There's some discussion of beginning to just test for HPV, which might be able to be done by women just doing a self-swab. So you just oh. send a woman something in the mail, she does a little swab inside the vagina and sends it back. If we find HPV, we know that that's somebody we want to do additional screening. If we don't find HPV, we know that's a pool of people that is extremely low risk. So would the woman have to be locating the cervix then? You know, so this is the stuff that's being studied. We're not there yet. Uh, you know, I'm not like a biology guy. Okay. There you go. Says, says the medical director. <laughs> the tests that are used for this rely on like DNA amplification technology. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. How much does the procedure cost? We live in America. We have no idea how much anything costs. But I have a friend okay. whose name is Barack Obama, <laughs> who, if your insurance company says he won't pay for your pap smear, I will personally call the insurance company. That's a good friend. Yeah. yeah. And I will tell them that if they don't cover it, then Barack is on his way. <laughs> No, no, I mean, this is, this is kind of, it's kind of absurd, but this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning yeah. with the nature of women's health is that it's more complex than men's health, okay? So there's hormone changes going on on a monthly basis, okay? Men have nothing like that. Through normal human behavior, which is sexuality, women have the potential to become pregnant. Their specific anatomy makes them more susceptible to common infections, like chlamydia, human papillomavirus, and we are going to make women pay for it. That's not right. It's shocking to me that we've gotten this far with making women pay for this stuff. That's been a big change since the Affordable Care Act is guaranteed coverage of these essential preventive services, and there are still loopholes that insurance companies are trying not to pay for this, especially in other parts of the country. Okay. We live in the great state of Washington. Since beginning practice here, I've had zero problems. But a lot of insurance companies, they got pushed back about not wanting to cover the HPV vaccine um, or certain birth control methods. It's a work in progress, but it's going in the right direction. Okay, let's talk numbers. 17.6 million people have gained health insurance coverage because of the Affordable Care Act. Of those 17.6 million, 6.1 are young adults between the ages of 19 and 25. In other words, 9 in 10 Americans now have health insurance. And 39.5 million women and 28 million children have benefited from annual limits on out-of-pocket spending on essential health benefits. The numbers speak for themselves. 
So I couldn't tell you how much it costs, but what I can tell you is that the cost of a cervical cancer death is much more than preventing it in our society. And so, I mean, I'm really privileged in the sense that I have insurance, but if I didn't know, if I didn't know my insurance, if I didn't know how to like go about getting the insurance through the Affordable Care Act, could I just like show up and yeah. get help? Yeah, that's I think also an essential service that we provide is basically we have patient care coordinators that are also like uh, insurance navigators. And it's that crazy and complicated that you need somebody to help you navigate it. No joke. Well, that about wraps up our interview with Sean. Thank you so much for listening in. I continue to be blown away by all the support and encouragement I've been shown. Gyno Girl has a lot in the works, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, the music you heard throughout this episode, in order of appearance, was Chastity Belt's Joke, Mons Jasset, August Stars, Poddington Bears, Rain on Glass, Sepia, Trinity Alps, and Holding Hands, and rocking us out are the Serotones with Don't Need It. All those times you made the-